I always find it uh, useful to just let it sink in a little bit that we're here on retreat away from home here doing this ancient practice together and you know we might have all kinds of different reactions or responses to finding ourselves here so we can just notice that and of course whatever reaction or response we have to being here it's it couldn't be inappropriate you know it is it is just what it is so we make room for that we might be apprehensive might be feeling that we made a big mistake, we might be really tired, might be really excited like going to our first slumber party, hanging out with friends. Even sometimes terror can arise for people being on retreat. And it's a a really incredible occasion to play with this practice we, to some degree, each of us are interested in. It's really a practice of freedom. We're not here to be serious. That's not the practice. Who can be the most serious? And we're not here to be flippant, thinking somehow there's nothing to do or not important what we're doing. Really here, I think, because we have some intuition that this heart right here can be at ease. This heart right here can be free. Not later or after I've been good for a long time, then I get to be free. But that it's actually, it's its nature already this freedom, this ease, this space. So for the theme this weekend, we can work with this question of allegiance. You know, where is our allegiance? What do we trust or what do we respect? Do we respect our thoughts about things? the meaning that we give to things. Like I mentioned now, you know, we might have all kinds of different, each of us might have many different kinds of reactions and responses. And if we're in allegiance with our thoughts about things, our attitude, then every time we have a particular attitude about being here, we have to rarefy it or we have to make it something real. So you have a moment, you know, real depth or something, and then you feel, oh, this is a holy thing we're doing here. And then as soon as we're in that thought, we've conceptualized the retreat, 
as being some great holy activity, sacred activity. We could spend the whole retreat or the whole rest of our lives in this limited, in this heavy way, making our spiritual practice special or holy or sacred, living up to our ideas about things, our definitions of things. Or we could get just as easily identified with any sense of doubt, like, this seems awfully stupid. Not speaking to each other for a whole weekend seems tight and inappropriate. Why would people do that? It's like Buddhist Victorians, you know, staring at the floor, not talking. Come practice repression. (laughs) It feels so good when it's over. So right from the start, we have to first understand that we're interested in being free and at ease, releasing into love, releasing into non-fear, and that this is something each of us has to figure out in a sense or has to realize for ourselves. It's not good enough that the Buddha or somebody says it's true. The question is, is it true for us now? What's in the way? And I'm sure many of you know this experience quite well. You know, even having heard what I've said so far and having you know, heard similar things before, from the point of view of being an agitated and distracted human being, having emotions and attitudes that we're not so proud about, we can think about the space of the mind. We can think about freedom. We can think about calm and peace from this point of view of agitation or attachment or fear. But what we're interested in actually is not uh, conceptualizing the path of practice. We're interested in living out of the freedom. You know, so the, the, the flip side is, you know, from the point of view of freedom, being able to see the conditioning of our minds, you know, to see the attachment and the fear and the greed but we're seeing it from the point of view of stillness or space or freedom. We're seeing everything that comes and goes. This is a wonderful line I find from Ajahn Sumedho. He has a booklet you can download uh, on the internet, Mindfulness, the Path to the Deathless. We use it a lot in some of our classes at Common Ground. And in that, in that uh, booklet, he has this line, that which observes greed is not greed. And of course, you could substitute any difficult state of mind. That which observes greed is not greed. Greed cannot observe itself. But that which is not greed can observe it. 
This observing is what we call Buddha or Buddha wisdom, awareness of the way things are. And I like it because it really points to something here and now. It points to freedom that's already here and now. No matter what the particular conditioned state we find ourselves in, the particular life situation, the particular mood or attitude, (coughs) if this path of practice has any value, it's possible for freedom to arise. It's possible to realize the freedom that's here, maybe I should say. And it, it really comes down to this allegiance. We can use the, particular, the particulars of the experience and in a sense react, struggle against, try to explain to ourselves ourselves why this is happening, how I can get beyond it. Or with this intuitive awareness, this clarity, this simplicity, we can understand that it's like this now. And of course words don't really do that justice, what I'm pointing to. But like we could just experiment now with our bodies. We're all sitting here. There are these sensations in the body and they may be pleasant or they may be unpleasant. But the knowing, the knowing that knows the sensations now, that knowing is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neither good nor bad young or old. There's a simplicity, a purity, and an essential freedom. And it really comes down to allegiance. Are we interested in this refuge, this empty, radiant, buoyant refuge of awareness, of that simple knowing that can know greed and can know anger, can know that thought, I want to be a good yogi or I'm tired of being a good yogi, I want to be a bad yogi now, and can know whatever thought arises. like the space of the room, it doesn't get stained by whatever it is that's arising for us or arising around us. And the the power of this refuge, this refuge in knowing, the Buddha knowing Dhamma, the one who knows knowing the way things are. The great transforming power is that whatever arises, whatever we're experiencing, can be 
understood as just something being known. So we're really remembering our refuge, our allegiance to the potential, this uh, never-ending potential of knowing. Even moments of real shame or humiliation, you walk into the meditation hall and trip or pass gas in an obvious way or something where really a lot of embarrassment arises. Drop your plate in the meditation hall, take too much food before you realize it and then can't put it back. And so there you are, you know, and there's all the shame or all the, the embarrassment and then that's the, that's the moment when this question of allegiance can come up. Are we going to, out of habit, build a lot of meaning based on the thoughts and emotions that are present? Or can we, again, realize the freedom of knowing that that pain of embarrassment or that shame, it's just something being known something, in a sense, moving through the space of the heart, through the space of the mind, the empty, radiant, loving space of the mind, that receptive space of the mind that includes everything. But here we're not focused on, we're not uh, focused with attachment and identification on what's moving through the space of the mind. We can be aware, realizing that beautiful space of the mind itself. That, in a sense, it's like the potential, the mind or heart's potential to simply know, to simply let things come and go. No matter how beautiful we are or the moment is, or no matter how despicable we are or the moment is, So, of course, you know, we'll be doing our walking practice and we'll be doing our sitting practice and our eating practice. And in a way, all of the formalities of the retreat experience are the perfect setup for neurotic activity. You know, we can be sitting with our breath, trying to get somewhere with it or trying to be some kind of yogi with it. Same with our eating, same with our yogi jobs. So instead, let's make this commitment to each other, and especially for ourselves, make this commitment to take refuge in freedom, to remember, to keep remembering this primal wish or this primal interest in freedom, in the heart's release, not trusting the heart's you know, the heart's weight or the heart's bound, feeling of being bound. We're interested, we're trusting the full heart's release, the non-clinging. And this is how, of course, the Buddha defined Nibbana or Nirvana as the heart's full release of everything that's tight. Greed is tight, fear is tight, Aversion is tight, distraction, denial is tight, 
But the heart's full release isn't a rejection of those so-called negative qualities because that's tight too. That's just more of those negative qualities to be afraid of the defilements, to think that we're here to get rid of the defilements. The abandoning of the defilements comes through wisdom, not through cleaning house. We understand that everything comes and goes. And we realize a way of being in the middle of everything that comes and goes. But we can only realize that being in the middle of it, being free in the middle of it, when we, when the mind, through practice, realizes that it can not, doesn't have to take a hold, doesn't have to cling, doesn't have to protect. So, for example, again, when we're sitting and being with the breath in and the breath out, we give ourselves that task in order to, in a sense, illuminate all of the neurotic activity around being with the breath. And when you're doing your yogi job, partly we're doing the yogi job in order to have clean bathrooms and food. And But in terms of practice, it helps to illuminate neurotic activity. We can't be free unless we go beyond our identification, attachment to neurotic activity. So when you're walking, and when you're moving about, and when you're getting ready for bed and getting up in the morning, it's like we're remembering this intention to be free. And to see that the only direction, the only way to freedom is this particular kind of letting go. Letting the world, letting the personality, letting conditions be the way that they are. Not through any kind of control. So if you come to the retreat thinking it's a really serious endeavor, then we, we can't hold that idea in the mind. It is in the way of freedom. Or if you're here with the opposite attitude, we have to let that go too. Can't really hold on to any idea about anything, especially any idea about ourselves. And of course, we only think, you know, we need these ideas need the attachment to the ideas. We don't. The more we recognize this intuitive awareness, the more we start to recognize also that it doesn't need any protection, doesn't need any maintenance, and actually it doesn't even need any effort, efforting sort of there. One of the more famous lines from the Buddhist teachings spoken 
shortly after his awakening, his deep insight under the Bodhi tree, where he said, the gates to the deathless are open for those who, and often this last part is it's sort of translated in different ways, never very clear, but for those who have faith is one way that it's translated. The gates to the deathless are open for those who have faith. So the deathless here is the experience of freedom. The gates to freedom are open for those who have faith. But Ajahn Sumedho translates it in different ways, that last part. The gates to the deathless are open for those who listen, who are alert and attentive. And allowing the the force and the sort of transforming force of letting go. That's what we're listening. And in that listening, we're not grabbing. We're not clinging. It's like the, the mindfulness actually allows, it sort of uh, creates the ground for letting go, for letting go of clinging. That's why it's such a skillful means to be mindful. We can't be mindful of humiliation and be humiliated. If we're aware that humiliation feels like this, we're not humiliated. We're aware that it feels like this. Then he also translates it another way. He says, the gates to the deathless are open for those who trust and release their faith. And then a third way, the gates to the deathless are open for those who live in this knowledge of awareness. One of the great values of being out of the city, even here, you know, with a group of people, but it's a different, there's a different quality. And the stillness, in a sense, I'd like to say the emptiness of, you know, the relative emptiness of human civilization is just more apparent next to a big lake with a lot of open fields. And so, even in the few moments between our different neurotic thoughts, it becomes harder and harder to miss the great space, the great space of now or the great space of the heart or mind. It starts to put our neurotic activity into perspective, you know, that it's just a thought, it's just a feeling. We can have a thought about our, you know, busy life or our difficult life situation, and it can feel really heavy. But in another moment, when we realize it's just a thought, it's not much of anything. So, part of using intuitive, intuitive awareness, this simple comprehension, simple clarity, as a practice is um, we're really finding, um, instead of like Mark getting to that way of being or Mark getting to that insight, it's more like Mark, the neurotic guy here, you know, 
who's on retreat, letting the truth of this space or stillness have its effect. And just being out here, you can use the, the image of seeing the sky or looking across the lake or hearing the silence, the relative silence of city sounds. You can use so many different moments of experience to uh, sort of reflect that truth, that, that basic, essential, non-stoppable freedom. That things are already really simple, already really free. Of course, we can gum it all up by thinking and identification with thinking. But the more we work with this intuitive awareness, the more we start to feel the subtle gravitational pull towards stillness or silence or space, emptiness. It's like a shifting of allegiance. Do I really need to, want to go back into that dark little box and worry about this or that, plan this or that, regurgitate this or that? Is that helpful? Is that an act of kindness in any way for anybody? So I'll leave it here for tonight and uh, I'll share some more reflections on intuitive awareness over the next two nights. We'll have our small groups um, tomorrow and Saturday to check in with and uh, a few opportunities for one-on-one meetings too later in the weekend. So it's traditional um, at these retreats to do the formal refuges and precepts using the Pali language. And that's the handout most of you picked up. If you didn't, it's sitting on a chair just outside the door. And Debbie, you know, there's a space here. If later you want to move your cushion there so you're not stuck by the door for the weekend. So we, we do this in Pali, one of the few rituals we do at Common Ground as a way of connecting with the lineage of men and women who have done this practice. Of course, many of them, <laughs> all of them now, of course, in cultures that don't speak Pali, still we chant it in Pali. In part, it's, it's just an act of devotion to the lineage itself and to our original teacher, this person we refer to as the Buddha, who had seemingly, from as much as we can tell, a really profound insight that he was able to articulate in a way. And when we hear how he articulated, it's still, you know, many hundreds of years later, it makes sense. So the capacity for him to explain (coughs) what happened to his mind still resonates for us. So we honor the teacher 
then we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. We take refuge in the one who knows. So we're taking refuge in this intuitive awareness and its capacity to know Dhamma the way it is without suffering, without contraction, without identification. So it's not a distant kind of awareness. It's a fully immersed, inclusive awareness. Buddha knowing Dhamma, and what arises out of that is what we call Sangha. So we take refuge in Sangha, which is enlightened activity. You know, love, for example, generosity, kindness, patience, joy. These are the qualities of Sangha. You know, we superficially we refer to ourselves as a group, as Sangha, but when we're in a funk and don't realize we're in a funk, that's not Sangha, that's being in a funk. Sangha is when, in those moments, when it is really simple, Buddha knowing Dhamma. The simple heart knowing it's like this now, and the, the absence of the contraction, the absence of the clinging, that buoyancy allows us to respond with joy and with kindness and with nimbleness and creativity in the world. So we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. We do that three times traditionally. It's fine to think of it objectively or uh, sort of on the surface, but we're really, as, a, as practitioners, we're interested in uh, understanding the movement of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha in our own mind or heart. That's what we're really taking refuge in, not something external. And then we do the five precepts as a way of protecting our little community for this weekend. And they really center around not harming, living in a way dedicated to not harming ourselves and not harming others, not taking what isn't ours or what hasn't been given, not engaging in sexual activity of any kind, so that we're really free. I mean, obviously we're all sexual beings, like it or not, and so it's easy for us, and it will happen, of course, for that part of our condition to get triggered, to be awakened. But we're intentionally not awakening it for each other. So that, uh, because it's a intoxicating energy, if you haven't noticed. So it's nice that we can be here together in a community without awakening a lot of that social energy, including the sexual energy. So we make that commitment to be here together without playing with that energy, activating it, without speaking falsely, which is one of the reasons we just keep quiet. We have fewer regrets when we don't talk. <laughs> you know how it is when you're hanging out with a bunch of people and you go to bed at night and you think of all the stupid things you said, <laughs> or all the things you should have said but were afraid to say. So this is relatively easy right speech because we're not talking too much. And then, of course, we're not intoxicating the mind, even in terms of too much tea or too much coffee. You know, if your body's used to some caffeine, then then give it what it's used to so that you don't have the shock of being off your routine. But it's easy when we have a, this sort of simple schedule to want to intoxicate the mind. And, you know, looking at books, you know, looking for some excitement somewhere, if not caffeine, something. So we're practicing not intoxicating the mind. 
and really discovering that we can be free with whatever might be arising, that there is a way. And even if we don't know how, we're going to really hang out until something becomes clear, like some way of not suffering. And one of the things about being in that experience of suffering is we'll see that sometimes it's really intense, sometimes it's less intense. And that teaches us. We say, well, what am I doing? Oh, I'm not clinging. I'm forgiving myself. It's less intense. So we get the whole shape of the practice by not trying to escape the difficult moments when they arise for us during the retreat, but just working with them as best we can, even if it's messy. So let's do this together, and then we'll sit for about 20 minutes and end at 9 o'clock. So you might want to just stretch your legs out if you need to. You can stand for a minute or so. And then when you're ready, just settle into a comfortable sitting posture. <coughs> 